I do have eight o'clock on my little clock, but there's always a few people coming late, so I decided out this morning <coughs> to begin with uh, one of my favourite Buddhist meditation jokes. <laughs> I've got to keep up my reputation. <coughs> so once after <coughs> a lovely meditation retreat, somebody went back home to Singapore and in Singapore they worked at the Singapore Zoo. And so when they turned up for walk for work on Monday morning, the head keeper there said, what job can I give you today? And he replied very mindfully, please give me a very soft job. I've been meditating in Perth and my mind is now very calm. And the headkeeper said, I've got just a job for you. Go and look after the tortoise enclosure. You remember this one? <laughs> Go look after the tortoise enclosure. And so the guy who just come off retreat said, yes, I will look after the tortoises. Because when you're very peaceful, you can't even speak fast. So slowly, mindful of every step he was taking, he walked over to the tortoise enclosure. And the head keeper was a bit concerned, so after a couple of hours, the head keeper went to check on him. When he checked on him, he found the gates of the tortoise enclosure was wide open and all the tortoises had escaped. What happened, said the head keeper. Well, said the meditating keeper, I opened the gate and whoosh. <laughs> When you're very calm and slow, even tortoises go fast in comparison to you. So if ever you work in a zoo, don't give such jobs to any meditator when they just come off retreat. Anyway, the tortoise enclosure joke. So anyway, back to... The meditation. How can you get to that state that you're too slow to even look after tortoises? <laughs> but um, in the meditation, which is our basically our second day, the first evening when you're here, I just give a rough uh, indication of what we're supposed to uh, be doing. Second, uh, yesterday, a little bit more instruction, especially yesterday very much on being kind to your mind, being a good friend to it. If you're a good friend to it, you can stay with it and you don't wander off anywhere. But then, 
The next time people say, well, can't you give us some more instructions on meditation? Breath meditation, satipatthana meditation, loving-kindness meditation. And all the time I'd like just to get to the heart of you know, what we're doing this for and how this works before we give the, uh, the specific instructions. In fact, sometimes we give too many instructions. I say that because when you look at the story of the Buddha and you start reading the suttas, you know, sometimes the Buddha will give these simple instructions. In the scene, there's just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the cognized, just the cognized. In the known, just the known. And people became enlightened. I don't know how many times I've said that in Singapore. It's never worked yet. (laughs) But the point is that sometimes we get so many instructions, it does become a little bit confusing. What type of meditation should you do? Vipassana meditation? Samatha meditation? Concentration? Loving kindness? Letting go, just being mindful, doing casino meditations. And sometimes some people want to hear casino, casino meditations. <laughs> I've got to pronounce that very carefully. Casino meditation, nothing to do with gambling. All these different types of meditation, walking meditation, sitting meditation, standing meditation, laying down meditation, ananda meditation. How many of you have tried ananda meditation so far? Laying down, <laughs> laying down, laying down. But what's the heart of all this? Why are we doing this for? And a very good way of indicating this is that to realize that we have what in Buddhism we call the five hindrances, which are basically wanting, ill will sloth and torpor, restlessness, and the fifth one, doubt. Do you know what those are? We always think we do, but a lot of times we don't. Honestly, I'm being personal now, it took years for me to understand what this doubt was as a hindrance to meditation. And You can describe it, you can analyze it, you can write a PhD thesis on it if you want. But then had one of these experiences, I'll share this with you, I think many of you know it already, that when I was uh, meditating one day here in Perth, I remember the occasion, I remember these occasions because when you have a nice meditation, you find out it, it stays with you for a long, long, long time, if not forever. So I was meditating, have a nice time. When I, was cu- when I was coming out of the meditation, then I, I'm not sure where this came from, but I decided to ask myself, what is my earliest memory? And because my mind was peaceful, just a memory of my early childhood came up. I've mentioned that to you before. I was in my baby's pram and I could smell everything, recognize my mother, a little my toy little pig, which uh, I would play with. A cheap thing, but it caused me so much happiness. I remembered all of that, and also remembered the importance of smell, 
as a young baby. I could recognize my mother and my pram and my little uh, ceramic pig by how it smelled. The sight of it was not so important. And when I, you could play around in there, you could explore my pram. And I, I was reliving an experience so many years earlier. Now, I'm not allowed by my precepts to say any more about past lives, but I can get away with that, because this is in this life. It's like a loophole. And no monk can tell me off for that. But one interesting thing was that when I had that experience, when I came out afterwards, I was so sure, so confident that was real. It wasn't a dream, I wasn't imagining things, I wasn't fantasizing, I wasn't going mad or crazy. We had the concept with it that it was real. And I repeated that to the friends I told that story to for so many years. I don't know, three, four years, I've been telling that story to you know, close uh, friends. And then I realized, well, how come I was so confident? It was because the hindrance of doubt was not there when that occurred. A real past life experience or early life experience only happens, you know, the real ones, is when the five hindrances are being subdued. So doubt is just not there. That's why if any one of you has a past life experience or an early life experience, if it's a real one, I don't mean out of hypnotic regression, because even hypnotic regression, you still have some doubt there. People have to go to the libraries and check it out. But if it's a meditation one, you can check it out if you wish, but there's a certainty there. Doubt has been overcome. So you can actually feel what it's like. An experience, not just a theory, not just something which is logical, but an experiential-based understanding. And that's the same with the other of the five hindrances. Now, wanting, the real, it's called Kamachanda, or sometimes it's called Loke Abhija. That's mostly in the Anguttara Nikaya, it's called Loke Abhija. And I mention that, and Loke Abhija, it's alternative synonym, because many people come across that second version of the first hindrance, Loke Abhija, in the Satipatthana Sutta. In the Satipatthana Sutta, you have the preliminaries. Vinaya loke abhija domanasang. Vinaya means having disciplined, subdued, lessened. It comes from the same root as the monks Vinaya, Vinati. So it means like it's lessened those two things having done that, it's a past participle. It's having done that, having already done that, having already lessened those two things, loke abhija and domanasang, then you do the satipatthana. And having lessened those two things, those two things mean loke abhija is the first hindrance, domanasa is a synonym for the second hindrance. That's what you're supposed to do in satipatthana practice, Lessen those hindrances, first of all. And in the idioms of Pali, it's mentioned uh, 
in those commentaries, but even before then, in that in Padisambhidamaka, that uh, when there's a group of qualities which are repeated again and again and again and again and again, mentioning the first two is meant to include the whole list of things. So you've got the four noble truths, just mentioning the first two means the other two have to be included. It's like a synonym. So anyway, the five hindrances are what need to be suppressed before you do any type of meditation. That's a nice way of looking at meditation. Whatever lessens those five hindrances. And once those five hindrances are gone, wow, it's like your mind has some power now. If once the five hindrances are reduced or even gone, if you want to do some loving-kindness meditation, zap, zap, zap. And I say like zap because as a kid I used to actually read those, uh, was it superhero comics? You know, like Batman comics and Superman comics and the Green Lantern. They used to read comics my mum used to get from the... the uh, news agent to keep me quiet on a Saturday when I wasn't supposed to be at school. But nevertheless, I remember all the zap, zap. And that's what it feels like. You know, you've got some energy in the mind where however you focus it, it will do what you ask it. It's empowering the mindfulness. And that's, I'm still quite surprised that you know, when you do hear of other teachers, I don't know any other teacher you know, who starts to talk about the different levels of mindfulness, power mindfulness, superpower mindfulness, because that's what it feels like. You know, even a drunk man is mindful. He can get home somehow. It has to have some degree of mindfulness to be able to find out where the next lamppost is, hold on to that and lurch on to the next lamppost. But he always finds his way home. I don't know about you, but I confess to being drunk once. I remember, you know, it was this weird, it's the last time I ever took any alcohol in my life. And that was at a scholar's dinner at Cambridge University. I got quite disgusted, you know, with the culture of top universities. I was following them like peer pressure. But why do all these people just go out for an evening in these big halls and libraries and, and get nine-course dinner, different wine, served by butlers, I mean, real butlers. And then afterwards, went to this, the old common room. And there, there's always three glasses, one for port, one for Madeira, one for claret. And if that wasn't bad enough, they had a big goblet, like silver and jewels. Must have been worth absolute fortunes, like a college heirloom. And it was filled with one of these wines. And every professor, student, lecturer, 
whoever they were, they had to, you know, the, the goblet was filled and you had to drain it. And afterwards, say a toast in Latin. That's why I didn't like Latin. That's why I said, <laughs> first it killed the Romans, now it's killing me. And I was absolutely crazy. I didn't remember much at all, except just waking up in my bed. I actually got home to my bed where I, I lived in the cottage, which was amazing. But anyway, that's just making a, a statement that even when you are drunk, you still have a tiny bit of mindfulness. But certainly not enough to get you enlightened. So there are different levels of mindfulness. And the less the five hindrances are active, the more powerful that mindfulness is. And it's not just powerful, the more enjoyable it is. I've made a, another sort of big emphasis on the happiness of meditation and basically of the, of the, the holy life. I know that some people feel, oh, don't become a monk or a nun. That's so hard, being a monk or being a nun. You have to deny yourself so much happiness. Absolute go, my young. A few people know that party word, go, my young. Go is the party word for a male cow what we usually call bull, B-U-L-L. My young is what comes out the backside of a bull. So what does that word say? That's right, bullshit. <laughs> I get criticised for just saying English, so I decide to you know, up the, the level of the talk by using a party term instead. So that's a lot of go my young. If you... <laughs> If you ever hear me say that word, go my young, you know what I'm talking about. No BS. So anyway, that it was strange, it was a revelation, incredibly reassuring. As soon as I decided to become a monk, well first of all, where did I decide to become a monk? I was like logical. I was in London, I'd done some meditation, you know, I really had a lot of faith in the Buddha, I was keeping the five precepts. So I wanted to find a nice place where I could ordain as a monk. And there were so many different temples. I honestly didn't matter, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Theravada, Zen, I don't care. As long as it's Buddhist and they do a lot of meditation. So I went to all these different Buddhist temples, checked them out. And the thing I was looking for more than anything was how happy were those monks. Honestly. It's like if you are getting a new soap powder for your washing machine, you look at what washes the whitest. <laughs> and how do you know if the meditation works. Have a look at someone who's been meditating for a while. See if they're happy. If someone comes along and says, 
My meditation is better than yours. You shouldn't go to that meditation teacher down the road. What a turn-off that is. So instead of just being um, convinced by words and sometimes angry words, you're looking at how some of these monks and nuns would meditate. What they look like, how they talk to you. And it was the ones which were smiling, which the ones which impressed me. And I must admit, at that time, the Thai monks impressed me most. So that's why I went to Thailand. That's why sometimes they used to call it the land of smiles, as a tourist uh, caption for them. Unfortunately, it's not the land of smiles these days. That smiliness, that softness, that's, that went many years ago, I'm sorry to say. But anyway, you met someone like an Ajahn Chah, some of these other monks, and had a great sense of humor. And they were so light-hearted. And I realized that that is an important. It shows their mindfulness was increasing, or had increased enormously. These were some of the happiest people I've ever seen in my life. And that also shocked me. How come when I, my own family were quite poor, but they were reasonably happy, but you went to a place like Cambridge University and some of the guys were lords. Some of them were extremely wealthy. And there's very little happiness there. But then you went to these poor places in Thailand some of the happiest little families I've ever seen. I just remember, I was always inquisitive, going to a ceremony once in a poor village and had a couple of hours free before the ceremonies really started. So in my monk's robe, I was walking through the forest, I heard some squeals and laughter and I just very surreptitiously went through the forest and there was a clearing there, a house just built on stilts and just wood sawn by the locals. And there was a family there, the husband, wife, and about six or seven kids. And those kids were joking around and screaming and laughing. They were so poor, but incredibly happy more happiness than I'd ever seen as a young boy growing up in London. And I realized I had a deprived childhood. (laughs) Had a TV. So instead of talking with each other, turn on TV. My father worked one place, mother worked another place. My brother and I went to different schools. We didn't have the happiness of family. And when I see that these days, I realize that where you get your joy from in life, what you really remember, you don't need very much just to joke and laugh and and run around all over the place, create a mess. That's what a family home should look like, a mess. (laughs) I shouldn't say that because Sometimes 
that you won't go to your chores today because Ajahn Brahm said the place should be like a mess. <laughs> I keep things in context. But anyway, that happiness is really important. And of course, Dharma Chaitya Sutta, King Prasadity went to see the Buddha for the last time. And the king said to the Buddha how much he enjoyed going to the Jetavana Monastery, the Jeta Grove. Why? asked the Buddha. Because all of the Sangha in this monastery, whenever I visit, they're always happy and smiling. It was like a, a snapshot, a photograph, when you can only do photographs with words, of what those monks and nuns were like in those days. Happy and smiling. Who'd ever want to go to a temple where everybody is got a horizontal mouth and never smile? You tell a joke, they go, ugh. There's no joy and energy in their life. Would you like to listen to a talk which is monotone and boring and always just tells you off? That's not the way to encourage people. That positive energy and humour and lightness, laughing at yourself, laughing at others, that is really important. So anyhow, that was why I chose to become a monk in Thailand and then with Ajahn Chah, and just had not just a lot of fun. The fun was not superficial. The joy was coming from deep inside. That light-heartedness, that being able to see the beauty in things. The ability to see that even when there was hot weather, for example, or cold weather, what is Buddhist climate control? When it's hot, you keep a cool head. When it's cold, you keep a warm heart. Is that easy to remember? Is it effective? It certainly doesn't cost any money. And it actually works. Keep a cool head if it's hot. A lot of times if you start thinking about it, it's really too hot. We need to get air conditions in the air conditioners in every room. We need to get put a roof over the whole of Jhana Grove to keep the sun out. We've got to keep all the mosquitoes out. Oh these flies. These flies, they've got no business up my nose. Why do they want to go and visit? <laughs> but honestly, there are Buddhist flies. Because I was <coughs> I was giving a meditation class in Nolamara many years ago and it was one of those days in the summertime, lots of flies around. And I said, look, if a fly lands on you while you're meditating, don't worry about it, it doesn't do you any harm. No one has ever been killed by a fly going in your ear or up your nose. The only thing it's irritating, yeah, fair enough, but it's not dangerous. Once they've gone in and had a look, they'd come out again. There's nothing up there for them. <laughs> Unless they're searching for somebody else, another friend who went up there some time ago. <laughs> but, as it happens, as soon as I said, I just let it do what it wants, 
then he said, let's start meditating now. And almost one minute after we started meditating, and this was in Nolamara, he got a camera on me all the time. Everything is recorded. You're okay, they're not watching what you're doing. You can put your fingers in your ears, up your nose, I don't care. It's not recorded. If I do that, <laughs> they've got a recording of it. <laughs> so anyway, as soon as we started meditating, one minute later, a fly landed right under my nose. Normally, I go... I couldn't do that because they would see and I was saying not to do that. Five minutes earlier, I'd be a hypocrite. So I just left it there. Now this fly, I realised it was very irritating. I couldn't watch the breath in my nose. I just watched the fly at my nose. <laughs> so what is important is if that's the only object you have, be with it. Don't try and suppress it. So then he started to do what we call maybe insight meditation. And that fly started walking. <laughs> it walked right around my mouth. And the insight I got from that is the most sensitive parts of your mouth to tie to a fly, what's it called it? The feet or whatever, six feet, appendages or whatever. Most sensitive part of the mouth is just on the edges. Up here and down there doesn't really irritate that much. So it came down here, and I realised oh, this is going to be irritating, and it was. But then it passed by, it didn't last, that was Anicca. And then it came back again on this side, that was Dukkha. <laughs> I haven't got there yet, don't run ahead. <laughs> <laughs> then it passed that side again and went up to the, the, uh, the middle of the nose again, underneath the nose. And then it went round another time. And as I Ling mentioned to you, it went round three times. And after the third time, then it flew away. And I contemplated that. When do you circumambulate something with reverence three times? Is a stupa, a place of worship, something holy. <laughs> and it went three times, that was important. Not three and a bit, not two and three quarters, three times, fully round, then it flew off. It was paying reverence to me. <laughs> at least to my mouth. <laughs> so I concluded that it was a Buddhist fly. <laughs> it never harmed you. But anyhow, you can tell that story and just have some fun with the whole experience if you are what we call in English light-hearted. See the fun in things. And when you can see the fun in things, the joy in things, nothing can upset you. It just stops all that ill will. Somebody bangs the door. And you think, oh, Ajahn Brahm has said so many times you shouldn't bang the door in the cottages. Are they still banging the doors? <laughs> Probably. So instead of getting angry, just laugh. Ajahn Chah always taught me, those mosquitoes 
oh, I mean, they were much worse than flies. They would bite you and just you get itchy. I don't know about the mosquitoes over in Singapore, but the ones in Thailand, they were kind of sadistic. Because they'd first of all go to your ear, buzz, 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 before biting you. It was like they were coming to tell you, I'm going to bite you. <laughs> Get ready for it. <laughs> and then they bite you. <laughs> but Ajahn Shah taught us, call the mosquito, the Thai word for mosquito is yung. And we call me Ajahn Brahm or Ajahn Chandra because that means teacher. He said, call every mosquito Ajahn Mosquito. Let them be your teacher. Over here, we'd have a few mosquitoes, but not that many. Call every fly which lands on you Ajahn Fly. Treat it with respect. And you learn so much. And that brings me up to the main topic of the talk after I wasted half an hour. <laughs> it's not really wasting. <laughs> and that is what I've called a very powerful meditation which encompasses just about every type of meditation. Very simple and extremely powerful. And that is the old Emperor's Three Questions meditation. That Emperor's Three Questions, it was, I'll give the background to it, it was a short story written by Leo Tolstoy in a book of short stories uh, written by Russian authors to support the, his, not the, support the Jewish community in uh, the Royal Russia at the time, Imperial Russia, because the Jewish community there were being quite badly treated. And they wanted to raise funds and raise awareness of how badly they were being treated. So a few people, like Dostoevsky and Chekhov and Tolstoy, wrote these short stories. I remember reading that when I was at, at college. Just voluntarily, because I just kind of liked Russian literature. And when I read that story, The Emperor's Three Questions, whew, that really affected me. Because the story was, written by Tolstoy, this emperor, fictitious emperor, was fed up with religion, causing more trouble than peace and harmony. So being the emperor, he decided to invent his own religion. Many emperors do things like that. Only this emperor decided to keep it really simple. Something which was practical, that every person could use that in their business or in their life, but also deep for meditation. And he came up with these three important questions. When is the most important time? Who is the most important person? And what is the most important thing to do? And the answer to the first question was an obvious answer. When is the most important time? Now. No, Friday, payday. 
sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm just being cheeky. Now, of course, it's now it's the only time you have. That was the easy one. But the answer to the next question, that was the one which really shook me. I remember putting the book down and just going for a walk. I never realised how accurate and powerful that insight was. Who is the most important person? Please excuse me, it's not the Buddha. It's not you. We always think that we are the most important person. No. It's the one right in front of you, whoever that happens to be. And that straight away, you can understand so many times. Because you know, I was a little student, I was hairy in those days. I had big curly hair, and where the hair ended, I got some pictures, where the hair ended, the beard started. It was very practical living in a cold country like, like uh, England. Because I had, I didn't need a hat or a scarf, because just my whole head was insulated by hair all the way around. There was just a hole in the middle where you could see me. <laughs> and, my, and my mother always used to say, get your hair cut, get your hair cut. And when I did, she said, that's not what I meant. Anyway, I told her, well, that's Buddhist teaching. Anicca, hair today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> so that's an old joke. <laughs> hair today, gone tomorrow. Anyway, so the one right in front of you is the most important person. And so often, you, as a young student, you've gone up to talk to a professor about something which you know, really fascinated you. I remember just one of the professors I had, the uh, lecturers, was Professor Sharma, and he was the teacher of Stephen Hawkins. These were really big shots. And sometimes you'd go up to them to ask a question. You know what they would do? So I'll tell you later. And they'd just try and get rid of you. And that really felt like nasty, like I didn't really belong, like I was being excluded. I may have had an interesting question to ask, but they weren't listening. I notice how often that happens in life. I try my best, if you ask me a question, to try and answer it. But sometimes you get so many questions. But it's not from disrespect. If you're right in front of me right now, I try and remember you're the most important person in the world. But not now. Now you are. Now Eileen is. Now I am. <laughs> that gives an importance to what's right in front of you. And it's very easy to do as long as you stay in this present moment. There's only one thing which is in front of you right now. And the next, the third part of the Empress Three Questions was, uh, actually, the, I should say, there were some people really, really important and you'd ask them a question you'd expect to be just pushed away. But they would actually give you attention. And that meant so much. Like an Ajahn Chah, or you know, Sangharaja of Thailand, or even some big uh, leaders of nations. Sometimes they would listen to you. I remember just part of my uh, role these days, because setting up Buddhism in Australia here, 
I have got invited to many, many uh, big occasions. And even just once, uh, I think it was the Melbourne Commonwealth Games, and Queen Elizabeth was there. And I was really surprised and went to a reception. And and I had to give a little speech at the cathedral beforehand for Commonwealth Day service. And she recognized straight away, oh, you're the monk who just gave the speech. Kind of that meant a lot to me. She actually was paying attention. And know she was in her late 80s at the time. But anyway, that's one of the reasons why she was so highly respected, because she respected others, even as small little monks. But anyhow, I should also say, I was with Ajahn Sujato at the time, and you know, because most of the people there were congregating around Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of Australia. She is the Queen of Australia, as well as England and a few other places. And uh, Prince Philip was there. I took Ajahn Sujata. There's another guy there, which is no one was talking to him, so I took pity on him. I went to see him, and I noticed that his, his uh, scalp, he was balding. And so I, being Ajahn Brahm, I told a joke. I said, well, if you lose any more hair, you can become a monk like me and my friend. Ha, 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 ha. And then, you know, we walked away. And then Ajahn Sajata said, who was that? And that was Prince Edward. He was there as well. And Ajahn Sujata said, Prince Edward? You can't talk like that to Prince Edward. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) They don't have like the Tower of Sydney over here, so I was safe. They can't put me in jail. (laughs) Please excuse me. Anyway, where was I going with this? Yeah. Uh, The most important person in the world. Just because, you know, who their parents are or their role in society. Does that make them more important? Honestly, I really try to open my own door when I'm coming in the hall. A lot of you don't let me. I try to open the door, I say, you go in first. But out of respect, I've got to be careful that respect doesn't go too far. Just because I'm a monk or a teacher, I'm still a human being and a friend. So anyway, the most important person in the world is the one right in front of you. The most important thing to do. Now that was also powerful. What are you supposed to do in life? What's the meaning of life? What's your task? And the task was just so beautifully put. To care. To care. That's all. And that was also just span me around. How many doctors are there here today? Is there a doctor in the house? There must be somewhere. It's okay, I'm not sick. (laughs) It's just I'm teaching you how to be a doctor. How about nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists, counsellors? What's your important role? What's the main thing you're supposed to do? And the answer to that question is that story 
I'll get on to the meditation in a moment. These are powerful stories. The, you see that I've been here for 40 years in Perth, nine years in Thailand before I as a monk. So I've seen many of these people grow up. Little kids come to your Dhamma class, running around being naughty. And then you sort of look after them, teach them, inspire them. And you, know, you give so much to them when they're young. And then this one young man, he's a Sri Lankan, he was uh, done well at school, decided to do medicine, became a doctor. And when he was first year being a doctor, as an intern or whatever you call it, that he was, he had this terrible experience one morning. And so he came to see me at lunchtime in our Nolamara Centre. He said, Ajahn Brahm, I haven't told my parents yet, but I think I'm going to have to resign. I just cannot be a doctor anymore. Why? All that effort, hard work for years, now he's kind of made it. Why do you want to resign? And he told this really tragedy. He was looking after one patient, a woman about 23 years of age, and they didn't quite know what was wrong with her. They were still doing tests as they do in in hospitals, but then she started the dying process and he couldn't stop it. She died early that morning, only 23. Logic says you don't need to feel guilty. And there's other people just have been doing tests looking after that patient. It's not your fault. But he said he did feel guilty. And especially being the doctor, in charge of that patient that day, it was his job to tell the woman's husband, your wife has died. It was unexpected. And this couple's two little kids. You no longer have a mummy. And he said that hurt so much. The psychological grief he felt of having let down this family. And he said, this is bound to happen again one day. I won't be able to face this ever again. It hurts too much. And it was, I've known him since he was a tiny kid. Of course, you know, I can understand how he felt. But then afterwards I told him, look, you've totally misunderstood the purpose of being a doctor. You're going to, if you think that's failure, then you're going to fail many times in your career as a doctor. Of course, everyone you treat is not going to uh, survive. Of course, Ajahn Brahm, everybody you teach meditation to is not going to go into jhanas. They will eventually, but many of them aren't. But that's not my job. The job of a doctor, of a nurse, of a psychologist, or whatever, not to cure you, but to care for you. If you remember, being a doctor, your main priority is to care for everybody you know, who's assigned to you as their doctor. If you care for everybody, you never need to fail.
even if a person dies and you've cared for them and you've cared for their, their loved ones, their family it makes all the difference in the world you can always care you, can, you can't always cure he got it so he went back to work in the afternoon and he carried on working and he was so amazing he's, he's now does colonoscopies so when one of the nuns I know and you know <laughs> was having some problems I gave him a call <laughs> and I said look one of our nuns you know she needs not the colonoscopy the endosc endoscopy that's the other, one, other end and can you help? He said, well, uh, leave it with me. And he called up one of his friends. And so got her to have an endoscopy within a few days, which is amazing. And because they're really kind and know what Buddhists are, they even gave the video to her. So she could, have you seen it yet? So, you should actually play it this afternoon then to people. <laughs> See what it's like in your gut. But the whole the thing about, you know, you help somebody else, you care for somebody else, and the payback is huge. People care for you. And you care for them. It's the most important thing to do in the world. So that becomes the empathy questions. What's that got to do with the meditation question? What is my object of meditation? Whatever's in front of me right now when I close my eyes, right now, now is the only time I ever have, whatever's in front of me, that's really important. Even if it's something which I think, I've never heard that as a meditation object before. Even something, well, that, a monk shouldn't be thinking that. If it's right in front of me, it's important. If it's something I don't approve of, I can learn from it. All of the teachers I had at school, which I hated, they're the ones I learned the most from. Everything which comes up into your mind right now, close your eyes, what's in front of your mind right now, it's important. That's the crucial part, giving it importance. Don't sort of demean it, discriminate and say, that's not important. I only want nimittas. I want to see the beautiful breath. All this other stuff, that's not important. Get rid of that. You don't try and get rid of anything. In meditation, whatever's here right now is really important. It's teaching you something. It will disappear when you've learned the lesson. You've got sloth and torpor. And for years I fought sloth and torpor. I thought that being tired, you know, during meditation was just letting down the team. I'm the disciple of Ajahn Chah. I shouldn't go there teaching meditation retreat and have my head hit the, the ground. That was embarrassing. Embarrassment's got no part of it, that's just pride. So instead, you learn. 
What is sloth and torpor? What does it feel like? Learn its lesson. Once you learn its lesson, the thing which I learn from sloth and torpor is the more I fight it, the more tired I get. It's obvious. You're fighting, you're putting forth energy. And that energy is just you haven't got much to begin with and you're just wasting the little you have left. So I decided you know, to experiment. Yeah, you feel tired. There's a reason for that, cause and effect. It's not a personal failure. Leave it alone. You know what I discovered? It's amazing when this happens to you. You know, you're just down here somewhere. Your mindfulness is getting more into what it feels like to be tired. And then your body straightens up all by itself. That's the cool thing. You don't do anything. The body does it. It's all cause and effect. Nothing to do with you. Then your body so straightens up and you feel great. Even like restlessness. Why are you restless? I already mentioned that. Because you've got a bad relationship to yourself. Yourself is always trying to run away from you. Go anywhere except to be with you. That's why friendship. Okay, mind, you want to go somewhere. You want to wander off into uh, what you're going to do when you go back uh, to Singapore. All the stuff you have to do. So that's important to you. It's right in your mind. Be with it. Now. You make the future the present. That's your little experience right now. Some sort of plan or fantasy about the future. Be with it. Then you can't be restless anymore. All restlessness is you want to be here and the mind's over there. So you go over to where the mind is and the mind goes over to where you were. And you go backwards and forwards. Restless. Get that rest by being where you are. And the last thing, whatever this object is, what do you do with it? Do you focus on it? Do you try and get rid of all the bad parts of it and hold on to the nice parts of it? See, a lovely nimitta, hold on to it. That destroys everything. You don't hold on to anything, you just care for it. If you care for the cockatoos up in the sky, the cockatoos would always come and visit you. Is that right, Nicholas? <laughs> the big band of cockatoos this morning as I walked into the Jana Grove. If you care for the parrots over, there's lots of parrots here as well, especially over in Bodhinyana Monastery, you care for them, they, they know you, they recognize you. And they'll come up for a feed. They're so cute. These are wild parrots. They're not pets. But you can just hold out. Concord's holding out some rice for them. Had some rice. Had some fish as well. I never realised that those parrots are vegetarians. The fish look exactly the same as the rice. They took the rice. They didn't take any fish. Anyway, this one parrot. And they're just not scared. They just come up and... They're so cute. I love that when you can feed wild animals. And they look after you, they don't sort of bite you. 
and all the magpies. The magpies, magpies swoop at some people in Australia, but after a while they, they know you, they get to know you. And they realize the monks are not just safe, but they're kind. So they always look after you. They come and see if there's any food around, because often any extra food you feed them. But anyway, that's a beautiful thing to do. You care. The little snake. There's a big sign on there. There's a snake seen outside here before. Did anyone have the kindness to let it in? It may have wanted to come and listen to a Dhamma talk. It may have wanted to meditate. Can you be kind to snakes? I'm going to get into trouble for that, I know. No, it's, you need the warm weather for it to come out. So it's got quite cold now. Just before you came, it was a couple of really warm days, hot days. But, you know, it's got cooler now. Snakes. Have you ever seen a snake with a scarf on or a jacket or a beanie? Those poor snakes get really cold. So if they go out, they just won't have a sun to warm up. So cold weather, they don't come out. So just still be kind to them. I don't know, but often I've looked at these snakes in the eyes. And, oh, I don't think I'm imagining it. You can see just how afraid they are of big human beings. And all, all they want is some kindness and some safety. You give them that kindness and safety, and the snake just lays there in the sun, just thankful that it's with other beings who are not going to harm it at all. Anyway, so that's the only thing to do is to care. So when you have a meditation object, you care for it. You say to each meditation object when it comes, the door of my heart is open to you. Sloth and torpor. Restlessness. Bliss. Whatever you are, indiscriminate kindness. And if you can do that, just like my father said, the door of my heart's open to you, no matter how you turn out, no matter what you are. You're my son, you can come into my house any time, no matter what you get up to. That's what you say to meditation objects. You think, well if I don't practice, that is practice. If I don't watch my breath, the breath will come to you. And all those amazing things which, you know, you want to find in meditation, you just, it's surprising, it's kind of shocking at first. All those things which you know, other monks talk about, like Ajahn Chah talked about, all those amazing things you read in the suttas, they happen. It's natural. It's not you don't do it. You don't strive for it. Just in this moment, Striving means some concept of the future. You're just right here, right now, being kind. Whatever is right here, right now, is the most important. And you give it that importance. You stay in this moment. And you're kind. It becomes really joyful. And that joy just energizes your mindfulness. You see so much more. What's important is what really deserves importance. Things like stillness, 
peace. Things disappearing, having less, not having more. And things just vanishing totally away. Emptiness. That's it for today, folks. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. That's nine o'clock. So thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. It's a full moon day for the monks anyway today. But because it's the Pawana day, the last day of our rains retreat, this afternoon I'll be over in uh, Monastery. And I thank you so much for giving me even yesterday afternoon off. I really enjoyed that. It's not that I'm lazy. I love giving talks, but sometimes you could get tired and worn out, and especially at my age. But you give me another afternoon off as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so please don't waste it. You've seen all these talks, and please meditate, rest, whatever you need to do. But don't waste the time. Just being in a quiet place, no one's going to judge you, no one's going to ask you to do anything. Don't waste those opportunities of solitude, of peace and quiet. Now is the only time you have. Whatever's right in front of you, whatever that is, give that importance. And be kind. Care. Thank you. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Can you do the three sides?